Is Austrian economics on the cutting edge of new thinking for business? Yes, it is. And it's been there for a long time. This is the Economics for Business podcast. We are here to help all businesses become champions for customers and value, improving lives with preferred and innovative products and services. We offer you the knowledge and tools to make your entrepreneurial journey a successful one. Now, here's your host, Hunter Hastings. Hi, Hunter Hastings here. Economics informs business and can make business ventures more successful. What do customers want most? That's a question economics can answer. How does a business firm assemble the right resources and delivery mechanisms to get it to them? That's an economics question. What's the customer's motivation to purchase? That's an economics question. How does a firm monitor and maximize customer satisfaction so they'll purchase again and again? That's another economics question. Today, of course, these subjects are not what most economists talk about and study. That's why we favor Austrian economics, the economics that sees human beings and individual choices and subjective decision-making rather than mathematical equations and aggregates. Following the precepts of Austrian economics can sometimes feel like being out on the cutting edge, which is an okay place to be. But just a century ago, which sounds like a long time, but isn't in the history of ideas. Einstein was a century ago. Just a century ago, Austrian thinking was the mainstream thinking. And it wasn't confined to Vienna. When America was on the cutting edge of economic thinking, American economists who were of the Austrian school were leading the way. They were subjectivists. In fact, they gave, according to today's guest, Ivan Yankovic, the clearest and most spectacular confirmations of Hayek's dictum that every great advance in modern economics has been an advance in the direction of greater subjectivism, a dictum that remains true today. Professor Yankovic has written a wonderful book focused on economists who drove this advance in their time, including names like Frank Fedder, Frank Knight, Herbert Davenport, and even a Brit, Philip Wicksteed. They were given the name the Psychological School, partly because of what is known today as radical subjectivism, dealing with human beliefs and preferences rather than data in deriving cause and effect analyses, which is what business is all about, serving human beliefs and preferences. Professor Yankovic is Professor of Economics at University of Mary in North Dakota and a prodigious writer published in many channels including the book we're discussing today, Mengerian Microeconomics, The Forgotten Anglo-American Contribution to the Austrian School. It's a book full of rich content for everyone. We're going to focus on looking through the entrepreneurial lens that's most relevant for business. Professor Yankovic, welcome to the Economics for Business podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, thank you. I'm going to call you Ivan from now on, if that's okay. That's, That's perfectly fine. Good. Our goal here at Economics for Business is to help entrepreneurs, to help them build what we call beautiful businesses by applying the principles of Austrian economics, to help them think better about business building. And it's a kind of a bridge between theory and practice. And you've published, among a lot of other major contributions to Austrian economics, a book about how a group of four American economists 
in the early part of the 20th century, advanced the Austrian school thinking. They gave us a lot of the core ideas that we build on today. And so we're going to talk about the book, about your analysis, about some of the questions you raise, some of the implications. Uh, and we'll do it through the lens of entrepreneurship because that's our, our core focus here. And it's a, it's a full chapter of your book too, which we'll, we'll talk about. But maybe you can start by introducing yourself, Ivan, and your work and your interests, and then your book, Mengarian Economics, The Forgotten Anglo-American Contribution to the Austrian School. So over to you. Oh, thank you. So as you can uh, hear from my accent, I'm not an, a native-born American. I've been born and raised in Serbia, which is a small country in southeastern Europe. I studied originally philosophy in Serbia, but developed a strong um, interest in uh, economic theory and economic policy during my undergraduate uh, studies in Serbia, and later on I developed this interest and devoted um, pretty much most of my intellectual energies to those issues such as economic theory and economic policy. And uh, Austrian economics was one of the, for, well, one of the most important um, aspects or one, one of the most important subjects that I studied in my later career as a kind of economist or a recovering philosopher however you want to however you want to put it so this book uh, is a is a product of my attempt to uh, offer a certain historical perspective of uh, uh, on one forgot largely forgotten chapter in the development of the austrian economics because the usual way how the history of the Austrian school is, is being told is that you have the founding generation in Austria, Karl Menger and Ben Bauwerk and maybe Wieser, and then you have the second generation with Ludwig von Mises and maybe Joseph Schumpeter to some degree, and the pupils and students of Ludwig von Mises in Austria. And then in America, the only transmission, well, the only transmission a pathway for the Austrian economics in America was from Ludwig von Mises and to a smaller degree from F.A. Hayek to their American pupils, students like Murray Rothbard, Israel Kirzner, and a variety of other younger followers and pupils of that, of that tradition. So what has been lost, what has been forgotten in this typical story that Austrians tell about themselves and their history is the contribution of this Anglo-American group, I would say, that primarily American, but with one significant British contributor, Philip Wicksteed, that operated in the late 19th century and early 20th century. It was a kind of missing link between these two generations, the early Austrians and later Americans. That, and that, that was one important uh, motivation for me to write the book. The second important motivation for me was that their theoretical contribution was exemplary and significant, and in some respects, they even improved on uh, the theories of Menger, Ben Bauwerk, and Wieser. And interestingly enough, some of their best theoretical solutions and some of their best theoretical contributions were either completely forgotten or eroded by the later tradition in America. So I decided that, that this story had to be told, although Earlier on, some of those economists were mentioned here or there in passing. Murray Rothbard was played a pioneering role in turning our attention to the contribution primarily of Frank Fetter. But there are, there are a couple of others who were 
also very important, like Herbert Davenport and Frank Knight, to some degree, John Bates Clark, and so on. So I decided to try and offer to develop a kind of systematic account of this tradition as a tradition, this tradition of American Austrianism, let's call it that way, or a psychological school, as Frank Fetter uh, called them. And this book is a product of that uh, endeavor. I remember reading Ivan that Mises wrote to uh, Fetter and, and thanked him for his contributions. Uh, I think it was in the pure time preference theory of interest. So. Oh, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. So when you read Mises' uh, solution of the problem of interest in human action and later Rothbard's uh, solution in man, economy, and state are completely fetarian. That they essentially sided in this dispute about the product, the inclusion or the exclusion of the productivity criterion in, in the theory of interest. They sided with Frank Fetter and, and Irving Fisher, although Fisher was not quite consistent here, but at least in, in, in one of his books, he advocated the Fetterian solution against Ben Bauer. Yeah. So essentially, both Mises and Rothbard. Uh, recognized Fetter's contribution in in improving upon improving upon Ben Bauer's solution of the problem of the theory of interest. Yep. That's one of the one of the one of the main contributions that he made. Yeah. So these American Austrians are are very important to uh, development of Austrian economics. I, our lens is business and entrepreneurship, and your chapter six is all about entrepreneurship and and some of the discussions and debates about that that theory. Um, so let's go straight there. I drew out, uh, Ivan, five areas of discussion, which uh, I'll list them, then we'll go through them one by one. What's the economic function of entrepreneurship? What function does it play in the economy? What is the activity of entrepreneurship? What do entrepreneurs actually do? Who does it? How do they do it? And how do they get paid? Which translates into uh, what is profit? So let's go through those. Let's start with the function of entrepreneurship. To what point do the four economists of what you call the psychological school advance our uh, understanding of the function of entrepreneurship? I think this is one of the issues in which I believe that this forgotten tradition that includes Philip, especially Philip Wickstead and Frank Knight and Frank Fetter, that they developed a theory of entrepreneurship, which is, in my view, and I try to document that to some extent in the book, superior to what later on became the predominant uh, approach to entrepreneurship in, in Austrian economics under the heavy coaching of Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard, as I said, who in turn were influenced by certain aspects of Frank Knight's theory. Uh, what I see as, as the main contribution of Fetter and Wickstead and Knight in his book, Risk Uncertainties in Profit, is a separation of the management function from the risk-taking function in an economy. So the way how the concept of entrepreneurship is usually utilized, employed, involves very often confusion between these two fundamental functions. So on the one hand, you have a saving or investment or a capitalist function, which involves sacrificing pre present goods for future goods, it involves sacrificing consumption for a future consumption, it involves this uh, uh, investment 
activity that prop up the production longer term production processes that's one thing and profit and interest would be kind of compensations that are that are that accrue to people who engage in in uh, uh, let's say, saving or investment functions, capitalists, as we would call them. And on the other hand, you have mm -hmm. a management function that would be the everything that pertains to organizing and optimizing the production process so as to satisfy the final consumer needs. That may involve directly organizing a production process on the spot within the firm for management. It could include making all kinds of decisions on a daily basis about whether to increase or decrease the size and scope of the business operation, what kind of technological innovation to try and introduce, whether to borrow money or not to borrow money, how much, so on, whether to integrate the two firms or not, or a variety of things that, that uh, fall under the, under, under the umbrella of management. And once you distinguish between these, two, between these two functions, then you have to decide, then there is relatively little space to define entrepreneurship as an independent function. You can call the management, people, people vacillate between these two. I, I use the example of Frank Knight to show this. That in, in chapter nine, Frank Knight seems to be seems to um, accept the uh, definition of entrepreneurship as as management, essentially, as organizing and optimizing the production process. On the other hand, in chapter ten, he accepts this idea of entrepreneurship as be, as, as being essentially the same as the capitalist function. Yeah. So, uh, so so from my standpoint. Uh, uh, there are two there are two dangers here one danger is completely ignoring the dynamic uh, aspects of the of the economic process entrepreneurship as such which is neoclassical economics very often uh, suffers from and on the other hand there is this excessive uh, adoration of entrepreneurship and overemphasis on entrepreneurship without sufficiently distinguishing between these different aspects of the production uh, of, of of the economic process, management and risk-taking functions. And if you draw this distinction, then there is very little room to define strictly what entrepreneurship would be. It could be either one of these two uh, things, and they're fundamentally different things. What we try and do now, uh, Ivan, I think, is get above that issue, which I'll return to in a second. And when we think about the entrepreneurial function, uh, Dr. Packard, one of our group, uh, defines it as the uh, intentional pursuit of new economic value. And we see that as processual. So uh, it's not the issue of, as to whether the entrepreneurship is uh, about capitalists or about managers, but it's about the pursuit of, of value and defining value as subjective, obviously. So does that elevate us above that, uh, that discussion about what they do? Yeah, it's it's kind of related, but pursuing value that's that's uh, in my view already contained in the very definition of consumer sovereignty. What entrepreneurs do, however you define entrepreneurs, let's say managers, corporate managers, people who are not the owners of, of the firm, who are just paid employees, who are in charge of organizing the production process. They're pursuing subjective value. They're trying to find, to figure out, to discover, as Hayek said, what kind of productive combination of productive process, which one among the millions of possible combinations of different 
variety of heterogeneous production pro, uh, production factors will serve the consumer the best. So that's not uh, contradictory. That's not in tension with my basic uh, argument that we should be distinguishing between management and uh, risk taking or uncertainty bearing. Of course, yes. If you define entrepreneurship as a, as a management, then the management pursues a new economic value that didn't exist before, trying to produce new and better things that people will reward by their dollar votes. Yeah, that's obvious. A quick note. Did you know that we provide supplemental materials for each podcast? Listening to and understanding the key takeaways from our expert guests helps you think better about building a more beautiful business. Taking direct action and implementing these strategies is when the real work begins. Take a concrete, immediate step to implementing a better business model today by downloading the show notes and business tool we've created for this episode. Visit Mises.org slash E4BPod. That's M-I-S-E-S dot org slash E, the number four, the letter B, P-O-D. And click on today's episode. Now, back to our interview. Yeah, it's a, that's why we say it's processual, which is, I think, yeah. a Lackman idea that it, it can involve yeah. management, can involve other things, but it's a process. Let me let me come at it another direction. We've got, as you mentioned in the book, we've got uh, Professor Klein and Professor Foss who talk about um, delegated judgment. So the original entrepreneur can delegate judgment to others. Or uh, Professor uh, Eng, I think that's how I pronounce his name, down in Texas, calls it entrepreneurial empowerment. The originating entrepreneur empowers the the managers and others. Does that does that help us in this distinction? Uh, unfortunately, I don't think so, because the main problem that Klein and Foss and other Rothbardians are trying to solve is this problem of essentially the, the bind in which you put yourself once you identify the capitalist and managerial function. Once you say, as Frank Knight in Chapter 10 of the uh, Risk, Pro Uncertainty and Profit says that the capitalist is the entrepreneur, the functional compensation for the entrepreneurial function which is risk-taking or, or making judgment in conditions of uncertainty, is profit. Once you make the, the identification of entrepreneurship as management on the one hand and capitalist or investing function on the other hand, then you have a very difficult time of explaining who is the entrepreneur and what is the entrepreneurship in a modern corporation in which mm -hmm. ownership and control are separated. Right. And then one one way to to approach it would be to say uh, the approach that um, Frank Knight in chapter nine, interestingly enough, of his book, explicitly subscribes to, and that Philip Wickstead explicitly subscribes to, and Frank Vetter may, maybe even more than than either one of them, is to say it doesn't matter whoever does the job, whoever coordinates the factors of production, whoever actually engages in real term in uh, on, on the spot in in this pursuit of new consumer and subjective consumer value is the entrepreneur and whatever kind of comp uh, compensation that person receives whether that's a salary if the person is a mere salaried employee or is maybe a profit in income if the person is the owner of the company or some combination of the two if the person is a manager who has a stock option it doesn't matter so then entrepreneurship uh, 
the very notion of a return on entrepreneurship as a special type of income is eliminated. Or if you're not ready to do that, if you're not ready to forego the 90 and identification of a capitalist and entrepreneurial function, then you can say, as Mises said, or as Klein following in Mises' footsteps says, that capitalist is always an entrepreneur and entrepreneur is always a capitalist. Mm-hmm. And then you can say that in a modern corporation, only people who are the owners, the shareholders, the stockholders are entrepreneurs. Everybody else has a delegated authority. Everybody right. else performs, as Mises said, the, the routine activities. And even Frank Knight in chapter 10 of his book says routine activity. And then the price of that is to say, to actually claim that people like Michael Milken or Elon Musk were not entrepreneurs because they were not shared majority shareholders or they were not shareholders at all of the corporations in which they were working and which they were managing. Yep. So, uh, so and then a client's solution is actually to try, um, in my view, doesn't cut it, doesn't el- eliminate the problem because he says, yeah, you have original judgment, which consists in deciding who is going to be the manager. You exercise the original judgment as a stockholder because you have a right to hire or fire an employee, the manager. And derived judgment, which is supposedly less important or derivative, is the judgment that you make in running the company on a daily basis. Now, the problem with that is actually that 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 go, that goes contrary to what 99% of people think of and entrepreneurship. 99% of the people would identify entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial behavior with the activities that Klein and Foss would describe as derived judgment, mm-hmm. <laughs> this routine type of activity. So that's, those are some of the reasons that I don't find all of those kind of theoretical solutions proposed to solve the, the problem that is created by Fra- the acceptance, wide acceptance of Frank Knight's identification of investment and management functions or risk-taking functions and management fu- functions, I think that the problem cannot be solved. The, the, the distinction that this identification of these two functions cannot be saved. And, and yeah. uh, Fetter and Wicksteed, Fetter and Wicksteed and Knight uh, offer some arguments for that. Okay, fair enough. I so this this concept of the intentional pursuit of of new economic value. One of the things we say. Uh, is the role of the the entrepreneur, and that is orchestration, which covers all of those activities. You know, you're or- orchestrating capital and resources and people and and uh, consumers and so on. It's orchestration to get to that subjective value. How how does that strike you? Oh, that's perfectly fine. That's actually I uh, I want to to clarify one thing that I actually agree with with Frank Knight's definition of entrepreneurship. I think that's maybe one of the best definitions of entrepreneurship as a function, as an economic function. This idea making judgment about the orchestration of resources in pursuit in in pursuit of uh, uh, higher future consumer value in the conditions of enter- uh, of uncertainty. Yeah, it's a very good. That, that's as good a, a definition of entrepreneurship as it gets. Uh, the problem begins once you try to isolate the entrepreneurial class. Actually, that's the problem for me. That's a kind of regression, in my view, if I may add this. Also, regression in a kind of classical uh, approach to the market process that the classical economics said that you have those three groups segregated social classes: rentiers, capitalists, and workers, who together 
comprise the the economic system and it seems to me that some of those people who follow in the footsteps of night from chapter 10 and Mises that they just want to add another another social class of entrepreneurs and to find some way to describe what would be their income that accrues to them yeah and in, in my view that just that that just muddies the water actually and and, and messes up the analysis uh, uh, very fine analysis of the essence of entrepreneurship that Frank Knight had had done, yeah. and Mises as well. Yeah, we're Mises not interested well. in any kind of class analysis here. We're yeah. we're, we're about the process. So uh... yeah, of course. But but I'm saying that one of the one of the implications of this idea that capitalist equals entrepreneurs equals orchestrator of the business enterprise is that you can isolate an entrepreneur by its by his uh, social status or ownership status or a type of income that he receives and so on so yeah. it's, actually what you make me only, think of what you make yeah. me think of when you say that is the the uh, objections to people like Jeff Bezos having so much money you know the hatred of billionaires is treating them yeah. as a class as opposed to the uh, emergent yeah. outcomes of the entrepreneurial process yeah yeah okay um so we've covered uh the first two points, I think, about uh, what is entrepreneurship, what do entrepreneurs do. Um, but one of the things I struggle with, and maybe you've maybe you've covered it, but let's just do it again, is we tend to personify entrepreneurs. We tend to make them individuals. And if it's a process, then the process can be conducted by a firm or a team or a group. It, it's not individual. So What's what's your thinking about the entrepreneur, the the individual? Uh, of, of course, I subscribe to to the concept of methodological individualism. I believe that mm -hmm. that all good economics has to be based on subjective theory of value. That's one of the major contributions of this group that they that they move the economic analysis forward a couple of decisive steps in the theory of production and distribution analysis based on subjective utility. And also at methodological individualism. And from that standpoint, uh, it, it would be a mystification to talk about entrepreneurship as a kind of broad uh, philosophical category in isolation from individuals who perform the entrepreneurial function, however we define it, individual entrepreneurs. So to that extent, I perfectly agree that uh, personification or personalization is important, that individual is the, is, is the main is the is the most fundamental unit of analysis. Yeah. However, Good. however, oh, I didn't mean to interrupt. I was going to go on the negative side and say, well, the one place in the corporation where perhaps we don't find any entrepreneurship or any entrepreneurs is in the bureaucracy. The one that's the part that's not customer facing is not necessarily trying to uh, create subjective yeah. value for at least for consumers. It's trying to create rules and regulations and limitations and maybe cost savings, but but not value. Is that is that fair? Do you think? Yeah, probably it is, but it depends how you look at the, how you define bureaucracy and how you look at the origins of, of of bureaucracy. In many modern private corporations, you have a you have a large number of lawyers and bureaucrats who are here not because of any inherent uh, demands or the entrepreneurial process and the production uh, activity, but rather 
to react and to adjust to the regulatory ever-changing regulatory framework and laws and the and and the threat that the government intervention imposes on on corporations so that's what economists call the dead weight loss that's something that that's a cost that corporations have to pay in order to stay in the business i, I remember when bill gates started he had exactly zero mm -hmm. lobbyists in washington dc in 1990s and he was very proud of that and then eventually microsoft grew larger and larger and became a target predictably as repeatedly that happened in american history and he had to hire dozens and hundreds of lobbyists in washington dc and to hire dozens of lawyers in in in-house in order to 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 fight the government intrusions and and attempts at regulating and and harming and yeah. harming his uh, his firm so yes bureaucracy is harmful but uh, bureaucracy in my view in my view is not a genuine or um, inherent um phenomenon emerging from the from the market economy is a, to, to a large degree it is a response to the uh, outside legal environment yeah. imposed by the state understood i think uh, i think i agree with you and then there's the the fourth issue how do how do entrepreneurs work? How do they do entrepreneurship? So we've talked about judgment and risk-taking and management, but um, one of the characteristic attributes that we talk about a lot in doing entrepreneurship is, is trial and error. In fact, there's a lot of discussion about entrepreneurial error, but yeah. we, it's, it's the constant search for the best production methods and the best way to create value. And you can, you can make mistakes, you can correct those mistakes, you can try something else again. So is that trial and error? Did our four mm -hmm. American uh, Austrians look at look at that process? Well, yes, I, I would say you can call it. I think it. Uh, who, who was that? Who uh, maybe Joseph Schumpeter, who described that as a, as a kind of quasi-Darwinian process of the more successful forms of entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurship surviving this uh, ruthless competitive pressure of, of other competing forms. Step mm -hmm. by step, trial, trial uh, by mechanism of trial and error, we discover the new and better ways of satisfying subjective needs of consumers, and that's what Hayek had in mind in his famous essay: "The competition is a discovery procedure." He said, "Competition and entrepreneurship are instruments of society gradually discovering and applying the knowledge about the real." long-term consumer wants and needs, the knowledge that we don't have in advance, the knowledge that no political or bureaucratic body can uh, collect and utilize in, a, in any centralized fashion. So there is no other way to do it. So yes, that's a, you can say that the theory of entrepreneurship is a subsidiary part of the theory of how the market process works or how the price system coordinates economic activity over time. An entrepreneur is actually one of the instruments of this process of gradual discovery of new and better ways to serve the consumer. Right, right. And now a lot of people are looking at that Hayekian interpretation as the evolutionary yeah. form, and they're they're making comparisons with biological evolution and the kind of complexity theory modeling that applies to biology can also apply to uh, to economics. That that's one of the implications there. Oh, yeah, of course. But you, you can see the the, the, the the most obvious example is the modern corporation. Actually, the modern corporation is a, I think, I, I think it was Joseph Schumpeter who talked about industrial mutations. Mm -hmm. 
So corporate, modern corporation is one of those organizational mutations of the concept of private firm that introduced the limited liability in the uh, often character, public character of the firm that offered some distinct distinct uh, comparative advantages of uh, over individual proprietorship uh, type of firm or, or, or closed partnership. And so that was one, one maybe random industrial mutation that created some distinct comparative advantages, allowing those types of firms to grow much bigger in size and to reap much higher uh, profit, and then simply forcing or nudging a variety of other entrepreneurs, investors, and producers to uh, accept that type of firm. And now it produces 90, 95% of the economic value added in a society. Yeah. I hadn't caught that word in Schumpeter, mutations. That's a great yeah, that's industrial mutations. That's from the from his famous um, chapter, uh, um, the process of creating yeah, destruction yeah. from his great book, Socialism, Democracy, and uh, and, and Capitalism, in which he argues that not only technological innovations are entrepreneurial uh, disturbances of the swamp of the kind of static equilibrium in which economists imagine the the real economy functions, but also organizational uh, changes. Yeah. That was also when Henry Ford discovered the assembly line, he actually obliterated all other alternative and inferior methods of organizing production within the firm for a very long period of time. And John D. Rockefeller discovered the magic of vertical integration. He actually obliterated the previous prevailing type of industrial organization in which you had every at every stage of production you have firms that cooperate through the market prices across the stages rockefeller was the first guy to integrate multiple stages of the same production process into one firm reaping then the benefits of economy of scale and the benefits of reducing opportunistic behavior and increasing increasing efficiency greatly and then other people had to follow suit other people had to imitate him in order to stay in the right. business so that's also that's also a kind of creative, creative innovation. Yeah, in, no less than the smartphone was vis-a-vis -vis the landline, <laughs> the old landline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The survival of the most adaptive. Yes, survival. So it's good. It's it's pretty uh, it's pretty good analogy with the Darwinian yeah. with the Darwinian process. So then the final. Uh, Item in our list of five was the big debate back then, I guess, over how entrepreneurs receive compensation. Is it is it profit or is it yeah. other forms? I, is it true to say we don't worry about that so much today? They can get they can pay themselves wages, they can get profit, they can take dividends, they can get acquired. There's all kinds of ways. So, yeah, yeah, that, that's what I would say, and that's what it seems to me Frank Knight mostly would say, and Philip Wickstead and Frank Fetter would say. Uh, Unfortunately, a, a significant chunk of modern Austrian theory of entrepreneurship and the firm uh, followed Frank Knight from Chapter 10, who is adamant in insisting that profit is an entrepreneurial compensation. Ludwig von Mises is adamant in insisting on the same thing. And a large part of the debates within modern Austrian industrial organization is how to think one aspect, let's say one, maybe not major part, but one aspect of those debates is how to understand the compensation entrepreneurial compensation? Is that profit or interest? Or is it kind of an unpredictable combination of all kinds of different incomes that 
yep. starting from from wages to profits to to interest. And I would subscribe to the latter tradition, but there are some people who are, I would say, maybe the majority opinion right now is follows this uh, Klein Foss line that again in turn follows Mises and Rothbard and Frank Knight from Chapter Ten that's saying no, capitalism capitalist equals entrepreneur. So profit is a compensation. The profit is the primary and main compensation for for entrepreneurial yep. function. Well, let's broaden out just a little bit, uh, Ivan, about your your book, which includes a lot more than uh, than entrepreneurship. I so I'm a little bit familiar with Frank Feder, and maybe our listeners are. And one of our group, Matt McCaffrey, calls him the forgotten giant of economics. And uh, that's a very apt name. Yeah, that's a very apt qualification. Yeah. So so he was he was celebrated in his day, and and he was president of the American Economics Association, which I learned. He was thoroughly subjectivist. So tell us a little bit more about Fetter as a, a important Austrian. So Fetter was a follower of, of uh, Menger and Ben Bauerk. Uh He was a uh, he uh, invented a new name actually for the same thing. Fetter was responsible for for calling the, what what is what we nowadays call Austrian economics as a psychological school. So he was adamant in sharply distinguishing between social sciences on the one hand, where economics belongs. And natural sciences, on the other hand, which are empirical uh, and uh, always subject to uh, verification and empirical procedures. So, for, yeah, so psychological, in a sense, psychological, not in a sense of trying to understand the psychological reasons for human action, but in understanding that that individual human action is the true causal agent of economic phenomenon. That what is in our minds, in our hearts. And our preferences and subjective values will determine what is going to happen in reality with physical stuff, with products, and so on. And Frank Vetter was was extremely successful in pushing this subjectivist, individualist, psychological core of Austrian economics in the theories. On the one hand, theory of interest that we already mentioned, in which he brilliantly formulated the so-called pure time preference theory of interest which says that the only source, the main, the crucial source of the phenomenon of pure interest is the time preference, the preference for present income over future income or for the present goods over future goods, depending which terminology we want to use. That the interest income is a compensation for waiting, compensation for sacrificing present income in exchange for future income. Uh, completely eliminating those remnants of the productivity theory, productivity arguments in the theory of interest that even Eugen von Bembauerk, who was uh, the original inventor of the pure time preference theory, still subscribed to. So Frank Fetter essentially improved on Bembauerk's theory of interest by, if I may say, further purifying it from these non-subjectivist or anti-subjectivist uh, elements and and putting the interest theory firmly on the ground on on the foundations of subjective utility the second contribution that he made is a theory of rent that's something that that murray rothbard emphasized very much indeed that which is kind of connected to the theory of interest that he says that the rental income is a compensation for productivity of the factor input services no matter whether those services are from the labor or 
from the capital goods, the other hand. So this mm -hmm. then productivity, the concept of productivity is taken care of within the theory of rent. So it doesn't matter what kind of what kind of factor we are talking about, land or a machine or equipment or a building or human labor, one or another type of human labor, all of them receive the same, structurally the same type of compensation, which is called rent, which, which uh, uh, compensates their marginal value product, their contribution on the margin to the financial bottom line, to the revenue of the firm. And then he, he derived from that, the theory about the factor prices in which the, the prices of the factor of production are determined by the marginal value productivity discounted by the interest rate to account for the phenomenon of time preference. So Frank Fetter's theory was maybe the pinnacle of this new theory of production and distribution that was developed by Ben Baberk and Wicksteed and Knight. Maybe Frank Fetter, in my view, uh, offered the, the most perfect uh, synthetic um, uh, formulation of this new subjectivist theory of production and distribution. Yeah. The way I wrote that down was incomes to factors accord to the way they appeal to human wants. So that's a, uh, that's a very subjectivist statement. Of course. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's subjectivist. So, so he uh, takes for granted this old idea of imputation by Menger. He assumes actually that what, what, what is in control, what determines the value of the factors is the their contribution to the economic value created to final consumer, actually, that the goods of lower order consumer goods, their value for consumers will determine the value of all participating uh, intermediate factors. Uh, Frank, Frank Fetter just perfected this and, and created a more elegant and comprehensive and systematic theory of how this process works, because this theory was kind of splintered into a couple of different uh, types of theories, theories of interest and rent and wages that were mostly disconnected. There was no, there was no universal uh, and a kind of unified framework for thinking about them. And Frank Fetter provided such a framework, in my view. One other term that, that uh, I saw in, the, in your book, Ivan, and I'm not sure where the Fetter originated, but we use it a lot, is psychic income. And we think of that in entrepreneurship terms, that the compensation or the income to the Entrepreneurs, not just in dollars and cents, but it's sent, it's it's achievement, it's meaning, it's it's uh, um, conducting the entrepreneurial ethic and the good feeling that you you do from that. Is psychic income his term, or did he just uh, develop it? Uh, he used it, and I'm not sure whether he invented it, but I think that Irving Fisher also used used their terms uh, as well. So that's that's a term that originates, as far as I can tell, with the American branch of the Austrian economics. That Menger and Ben Bauer didn't use that term. They maybe used the concept, but ne ne never used the term itself. Yeah, Rothbard uses it. I oh, know. Rothbard uses, uses it very much. Rothbard yeah. uses it in 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 a variety of his writings, including Man, Economy, and State. Just uh, turning to Frank Knight, we've talked about him a lot, and we, we discuss him a lot with, with uh, Professor Klein, obviously. One of the things you said in the book is he's a little bit inconsistent, even in chapters, <laughs> between one chapter yeah. and another. Tell us about that. Yeah, I discovered, yeah, you have chapter nine, in which Frank Knight develops a theory of entrepreneurship, which is the this standard theory of entrepreneurship as a judgment uh, in the conditions of uncertainty and so on. And he then tries to analyze what is the, how the entrepreneurs are compensated for. And he eventually accepts the fetter 
fixed it line. It says when a, when a firm is small and uh, run by an individual, the entrepreneurial income will come in the, in the form of profit. When the firm grows, then it could be it could be in wages. It could be entirely in wages if a manager is performing the the function. But he says it's very rarely that it's just pure wages. The, more likely there will be some combination of interest of profit income and wage income. So this is completely a, a theory completely consistent with the, with everything that Fetter and Wixted say. And then in chapter 10, he completely, completely forgets about that <laughs> and comes up with this strange theory about capitalism, meaning entrepreneurship, that um, you cannot exert entrepreneurial function if you're not the owner and that the profit or interest is the only type of income that accrues to uh, to entrepreneurs. And I just recently discovered actually maybe maybe a key or maybe a hint of how this happened, that Frank Knight's book was a rewriting uh, of his doctoral dissertation. Mm-hmm. And the doctoral dissertation originally had nine chapters. It ended with, with the chapter nine that I liked and that Fetter and Wixted would have liked. And he added the three chapters, the book that we have now, Risk, uncertainty, and profit had has twelve chapters. Three last chapters: chapter nine, ten, eleven, and four. Actually, four and uh, ten, eleven, and twelve. Three last chapters are were newly added when he published the book. So, uh, having in mind this uh, reputation of Frank Knight for eclecticism and the lack of kind of systematic approach to economic issues, it very well may be that that he didn't perceive this as a contradiction. That he just, yeah. in the meantime, developed a new theory and blended it seemingly uh, without much reflection with, with, with something that he had written years ago and don't bothering too much to try and reconcile what's, what seems to me when you read chapters 9 and 10 as a, as a blatant contradiction. That there is, I haven't found a way to, to reconcile this. And then, um, unfortunately, in my view, Mises and Rothbard run away with the, with the formulation of the theory in chapter 10. And Klein and Foss and majority Austrian tradition followed Mises and Rothbard in that regard. And this kind of Wikstidian, Fetterian formulation of chapter nine has been completely forgotten. And I try to kind of, in my own modest way, resurface or resurrect this uh, tradition in, in this book and in chapter six yeah. specifically. There's a, a, a phrase that is attributed to... Uh... Ludwig Lackmann, I think, when somebody asked him, what did Hayek think about X? And he said, which Hayek? Which Hayek, yeah. By which he meant, hey, if you read early Hayek and later Hayek, you get two different Hayeks. So maybe maybe you get two different nights as well. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I think that we have more than more than two more than two nights, probably. <laughs> but I, I know recently, Professor Joseph Salerno said something interesting about Hayek in economics, uh, and that people think that Hayek's economic thinking had undergone a great evolution in the meantime. And he had shown, I think, in, in my view, convincingly, that Hayek, uh, the only thing that that changed with regard to Hayek was his political preferences, his political posture. That he simply abandoned economic analysis mm-hmm. uh, un, until 1940s with the with the triumph of Keynesianism, because he concluded that it was a lost battle. That that uh, essentially nobody was was listening to him, and he turned to political and sociological and philosophical analysis. And once he got the Nobel Prize, and when it looks in economics, and when it started looking once again that his economic ideas might have a better hearing, he actually, the, the old Hayek 
actually revived many of the same ideas that young Hayek contributed <laughs> to the 90s. Yeah. So maybe Hayek was less inconsistent than it might seem in his economic theories. Certainly less, certainly less inconsistent than the 90s, in my view. That's the fun of the history of economic thought. Yeah. So uh, we're going to have to wrap it up there, Ivan. Um, so I, I thoroughly enjoyed the book. We'll link to it in the uh, in the key takeaways that we put on our site. Okay. And uh, if there's anything else that you'd like uh, listeners to read, we'll link to that as well. Just let me know afterwards. And I thank you very much okay. for today's conversation. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Economics for Business is a production of the Mises Institute. To explore more content like this, visit Mises.org. And for more from Hunter Hastings, visit HunterHastings.com.